This presentation was recorded live at the 19th annual SRI in the Rockies Conference, Beyond Borders, Investing and Partnering for a Sustainable World, held October 26th through 29th, 2008, in Whistler, British Columbia, Canada. Okay, now pretend I left. And I came back up to introduce Stephen Lewis. All right, thank you, thank you, thank you, Joe. So when I took this job two years ago, one of the things they didn't tell me was I'm going to have this really cool opportunity to introduce some of my heroes. As some of you who are at last year's SRI in the Rockies know, I had been wanting to meet Rebecca Adamson, one of the great indigenous leaders in the U.S. and overseas, for at least a decade. But we heard she was busy. But I met her at SRI in the Rockies finally last year, and I got to introduce her, and she's become a great friend. I'm equally delighted to, meet, to, to introduce to you tonight Stephen Lewis, who is someone I've known of for over 20 years. He's currently the co-director of AIDS Free World, a U.S.-based AIDS advocacy organization. Tonight, he's going to be speaking about where in the world is the world headed? a review of crucial global issues and the role of the SRI community in addressing them. I mean it when I say it is an honor tonight to introduce Stephen Lewis, a politician, diplomat, and international envoy for humanitarian efforts. Stephen is clearly a man who has had a mission in life to make social change. And the way he has accomplished that has evolved over time. I first got to know of him 20 years ago when I was starting my career on Capitol Hill and he came to speak at an event. He was a spellbinding speaker then and I'm sure you won't be disappointed tonight. At that point in the mid 80s, he was Canadian ambassador to the UN, having already been a member of the Ontario Legislative Assembly and leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party, during which time he became leader of the official opposition, a position I bet he kind of likes. Stephen Lewis continued his work with the United Nations as Deputy Executive Director of UNICEF and then assumed the role of UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for HIV AIDS in Africa. No small undertaking. During the time he worked at UNICEF, a time when my own work was on global children's rights, UNICEF and the UN overall was going through significant changes in creating a human rights-based approach to development, and in UNICEF, a child rights-based approach to that work. As some of you probably know, the UN is not known as the easiest place to work in the world, and going through the transition could not have made it easier. So I really salute Stephen Lewis's years of service with the United Nations. I doubt he will talk about it today, but someday I'd love to hear the inside story about his years in the UN. When he left the UN in 2006, at an age when a lot of people might have said, I've really done enough for humanity. It's time to take care of me. Stephen Lewis instead started the Stephen Lewis Foundation, a Canadian organization focused on working on HIV AIDS at the grassroots level in sub-Saharan Africa. He started this for the simple and shattering reason that the AIDS pandemic is ravaging the continent of Africa, especially women and girls. For this work, he has received many awards, and I love to tell you about this because you don't get to say this every day. In 2007, the Southern African Kingdom of Lesotho named Stephen Lewis as a knight commander of the most dignified order of Moshoshu. The knighthood is the country's highest honor. You know, there is a Jewish proverb that says, I ask not for a higher burden, but for broader shoulders. The work of Stephen Lewis makes this quote real. Please join me in welcoming him to SRI in the Rockies.
Thank you immensely. I, uh, I've rarely received so friendly, amiable, generous, deliciously hyperbolic uh, an introduction. Uh, it occurred to me, Lisa, if I may, that we might travel together hereafter. Uh, I'm delighted to be here on, uh, on every possible ground. I've, I've often thought that it's useful for a, a large gathering primarily of Americans to be subjected to a Canadian speaker. Uh, and uh, I spend a good deal of my time peripatetically wandering around the United States speaking to odd groups of people who I must admit when I have finished look at me as though I obviously belong in Guantanamo. Uh, so it's almost more than my frail psyche can endure to be in such a friendly atmosphere. But one of the reasons why I enjoy being in the United States is that I am so often introduced as Ambassador Lewis because of the diplomatic tenure at the United Nations. And I, I must say that I feel mournful on occasion to have to say to American audiences that in Canada, when you finish your tenure, you lose your title. <laughs> and you uh, revert to mortal obscurity again. It's only in the United States where once an ambassador, always an ambassador, once a governor, always a governor, once a senator, always a senator, once a president, always a president. If you will forgive me, your entire country is sustained by titular self-aggrandizement. <laughs> uh, uh, Canadians look upon it with a bemused affection. I uh, obviously reflected on what I might say this evening. I, I want to say a lot. I'm going to speak with an almost supernatural rapidity, and I beg you to allow the milk of human kindness to flow through your veins and tolerate it. Uh, I am not going to focus incestuously on the financial turbulence which is uh, lacerating this world. Obviously, in this room, there's a lot of... Uh, subterranean anxiety that uh, makes people feel very uneasy. But you have a number of breakout sessions, and now I gather from this evening a special session as well, which will directly engage in the discussion of the uh, financial convulsion sweeping the world. And therefore, I'm not going to attempt to reconnoiter that, nor do I bring any special expertise to it. What I want to do, however, is use the financial destabilization as an entree into what I would like to say. And in so doing, I'd like to go back three or four weeks to a press conference which Bono held in the presence of Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, in which Bono said with an appropriate degree of exasperation, that he couldn't get over the fact that within something like 48 hours, the United States had managed to summon $700 billion to bail out Wall Street, but the entire apparatus of the G8 was unable to summon $25 billion to fulfill the commitment it had made to the continent of Africa in the famous Glen Eagle Summit in July of 2005 in the United Kingdom. And in that uh, appropriate and invigorating Bono way, he laid out the arguments for this strange and unacceptable juxtaposition. Because the $25 billion were designed to deal with the Millennium Development Goals, and thus far the entire industrial world has been able to raise only $4 billion, and everybody understands the $25 billion will not be reached. It reminds me of the other juxtaposition which I carry around personally and in a way am profoundly vexed by, that my country of Canada and the United States together are now spending more than $3 billion a week to fight the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we've been unable to raise any more than $10 billion in a given year 
to fight a pandemic which has taken 25 million lives and has 33 million people in its grip. And I was reminded as well, I was reminded as well of that moment in the somewhat bizarre vice presidential debate in the United States. You, 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 you can see that I have learned the arts of diplomacy. Uh, when the candidates were asked by the moderator, given the nature of the financial situation, what is it that you're likely to curtail when you come to power? And it was Joe Biden who answered. And Joe Biden said, it's very difficult to predict in advance where we would diminish our intentions or change our promises, but I think we would probably start with, quote, foreign assistance, close quote. And I want to say to you that what is happening internationally at this moment in time, given the necessarily obsessive preoccupation with the financial realities, is that the tremendous vulnerability of the developing world, and particularly of the nearly a billion people struggling for survival on the continent of Africa, is being given short shrift on every front. And it's heartbreaking to know that a, a continent of several hundred million people who are so tremendously courageous in the face of such appalling adversity are going to have their lives yet further compromised and sabotaged. You see, that $25 billion that Bono referred to was actually directed towards the desperate effort to improve the human condition, as everyone in this room would wish it improved. You're all engaged in inherently ethical dimensions you care about governance, you care about social priorities, you care about environmental emphasis, you have an embrace of human rights, you're a group of people individually and collectively and in your various enterprises that give credence to what is best in the nature of the functioning of, of, of this society, of, of capitalist society. And to rob people of that 25 billion which was so inherently directed towards human need is heartbreaking. There were eight Millennium Development Goals. They were fashioned at the Millennium Development Summit of the General Assembly of the United Nations in the year 2000. That summit was meant to be a celebration of globalization. But as we proceeded through the 1990s, it was increasingly understood that globalization wasn't working that it wasn't able to deal with poverty, it wasn't able to deal with disease, it wasn't able to deal with conflict, it wasn't able to deal with the environment, that there had to be some other set of nostrums, some other set of targets which would bridge the gap between the developed and the developing world and overcome the tremendous division of, 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 of injustice that characterizes the relations between the two. And they set the year 2015 as the target. And just a few weeks ago in the General Assembly of the United Nations, 96 heads of state and government got together to make an appraisal of where we were halfway down the road. And it turned out, as they looked at it objectively, that most of the world would not make the Millennium Development Goals. That there would be some parts of China and some parts of India and some parts of Latin America which would seize them all but that by and large Africa would make none of the goals, Russia and parts of Eastern Europe would be exempt from the major goals, portions of India wouldn't make it, the Caribbean would be excluded, that we were fighting a tremendous battle and we were in many respects losing that battle. And the first of the eight goals to be achieved by the year 2015 was to, to reduce by half the most egregious forms of poverty and hunger. There's something very interesting here. The baseline for poverty internationally has always been taken at a dollar a day. If you're living below a dollar a day, you are truly impoverished. And the World Bank, over the course of the last year or two, made an appraisal of that particular analytic formula and came to the conclusion that it should be a dollar and a quarter a day, which was the benchmark below which the measurement could take place. And when it set that benchmark, having looked at it very seriously and documented it carefully, it pointed out that when you looked at a dollar a day, there were 930 million people living in poverty. But if you took a dollar and a quarter a day, 
There were 1.4 billion people living in poverty, and they pointed out that 100 million people had been added to the rolls in the last few months because of soaring food prices. So when you take it all together, you've got almost a quarter of humankind living below a dollar and a quarter a day. It's appalling. It's, it's almost beyond the capacity of the mind to comprehend and the terrible toll it takes at the grassroots in countries that are struggling, I, I have no way, I have no language, I have no means of conveying to you. Uh, all, all I can tell you is I, I've, I've tramped around Africa for the last several years. I've actually been going back and forth from the continent for 48 years. And every time I sat down in the last number of years with groups of women in a little community center, women who are living with AIDS, and they, they pour out their heart and they tell you what they think of the men who infected them and what it means for their families. And I ask them, almost desperately, what can I do for you? How can I help? I always expect them to say, we need drugs. They never say, we need drugs. They always say, we need food. Everyone is hungry. Everyone is struggling for food, particularly in the southern and eastern and central African countries which are besieged by the HIV and AIDS pandemic. And, and, and it's so overwhelming to know that so many people in the world on one continent are living on at best two meals a day, nothing on the weekend, including all of their orphan children who are struggling for place. And the second Millennium Development Goal was dramatically to reduce the infant mortality rate, uh, about which Lisa can tell you as, as, as uh, articulately and strongly as can I. But it's worth noting, I mean, this is the first decade of the 21st century, for God's sake. It's worth noting that between 9 and 10 million children die every year under the age of 5 of entirely preventable diseases. We're not talking about exotic diseases. We're talking about acute respiratory infections like pneumonia. We're talking about diarrhea, dehydration, malnutrition, almost 10 million children a year. How, how in God's name is that explained? What, what has happened to the moral anchor of this world? What is it about the passivity of the international community that children can be seen to be expendable in such numbers? It, it will, I admit to you, it drives me crazy that this should be the case and that it, it perpetuates. And the third millennium development goal was dramatically to reduce maternal mortality rates. It's not widely realized that more than half a million women die in childbirth every year. It has been true for between 20 and 25 years with some, sort of a kind of demonic repetition. We know everything there is to know about emergency obstetric intervention. We know about midwives. We know about birth attendants. We know about moving a woman who's in difficulty in labor from the rural hinterland into an urban hospital. And we've never been able to reduce the carnage. So again, the maternal mortality reduction became part of the Millennium Development Goals. And the fourth goal was to put every child of primary school age into primary school. There are between, this is almost uh, beyond belief, between 77 million and 100 million children of primary school age who are not in school. And they're not in school because they can't afford the school fees, and they can't afford the textbooks, and they can't afford the uniforms. May, may, I, may I tell you something which is sort of a reflection of a momentary ideological spasm? I'm really exercising uh, enormous self-discipline, so I'll behave myself. But, but, but just let me say to you that many countries in Africa never had school fees. It was unknown. And then in the 1980s and the 1990s, the international financial institutions, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund constructed this absurd econometric design called structural adjustment programs. And effectively, the way they operated was to say to numbers of countries, many of them led by corrupt dictators, we will give you the money for the loans you're asking, but we're imposing conditions in return, and the conditions are user fees. So countries where people had never had to pay anything for health care or to go to hospitals suddenly had to pay. 
Students who never had to pay school fees suddenly had to pay. Ten years later, the World Bank said, mea culpa, as they so often do, it was a mistake. We should have listened to our critics. We should never have initiated structural adjustment. But of course, the damage is done. And the kids can't go to school because now the fees occupy a significant percentage of the costs. And it is again another heartbreaking dimension that so many millions of children are denied school because of perverse policies which were in fact imposed by the Western world. And amongst the kids who can't go to school, over 60% are girls. It is ever thus. I, 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 I was pleased to hear about the uh, Women's Equity Fund and the, uh, and the honor that was uh, given, the salute that was given to the maintenance of drawing attention to questions of gender. Because for these young girls being pulled out of school to look after sick and ailing parents are always to be discriminated against in the choice families made. It's simply unendurable. And that leads me to the fifth Millennium Development Goal and the one I feel personally more strongly about than any other. And that's the effort to approximate gender equality. I, uh, I live in a feminist family. I, I live in a, in a feminist family. I love it. I believe uh, to the end of my days that the feminist analysis of the exercise of male power is probably the most insightful analysis to explain much of what is wrong with this difficult world. And I must say that the more I've had the privilege of working in the international community, the more I've come to the conclusion that the struggle for gender equality is the single most important struggle on the face of the planet. You cannot continue to marginalize 52% of the world's population and ever expect to achieve a degree of social justice and equity. It's just not possible. And when you look... And and, and when you look at the damage that is done to the women, particularly of the developing world, through so many perverse realities, whether it's international sexual trafficking or female genital mutilation or child brides or honor killings or an absence of inheritance rights or an absence of property rights, or an absence of laws against rape and sexual violence, or, a, or an absence of microcredit to give women some sense of economic autonomy, or a, or a lack of political representation, whatever the panoply of injustice, discrimination and stigma visited on women, it seems to have no end, and it so profoundly compromises their existence. And what has happened through the developing world latterly in many parts, and which is so unsettling, unnerving, so profoundly compromising, are the patterns of physical and sexual violence. The World Health Organization just did a quite astonishing study. It interviewed 25,000 women in 14 countries about physical and sexual violence. It found that the lowest levels of violence were in Japan at 14%, and the highest levels were in rural Ethiopia at 71%. And when they looked at the United Kingdom, the United States, and Canada, they found interim levels of 30 to 35%. So they, they saw that this was a, a pattern so deeply entrenched, whether it's marital rape or, or, or sexual violence from intimate partners or domestic abuse, these, these patterns are overwhelmingly entrenched. And then when you get destabilization in countries, they are further accelerated. A country like South Africa is a good example where you have 5,700,000 people living with HIV and AIDS in a population of somewhat over 40 million. Incredibly enough, South Africa is a country where, where 800 to 1,000 people die every day of AIDS-related illnesses. And in the year, the most recent year for which statistics are available, which is 2006, there were 52,000 reported rapes. 
And everyone knows that that re reflects only 5 to 10% of the actual number because women are so reluctant for a whole range of reasons to actually formally to report the rape and begin suddenly to engage in a police and judicial process. And it gets worse still when there is conflict. When there is conflict, it goes right out of control. I, I don't understand what these berserk, lunatic, predatory, male, sexual behavior, how it, how it happens under conflict, but it happens and it never seems to end. And it's not merely on the continent of Africa, which I admit is a continent I love, but, but throw your minds back to the rule of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. The president of Indonesia just apologized to East Timor for the sexual violence that was unleashed by his forces when they tried to prevent the independence of East Timor in the Balkans, I remind you, a white Western country or countries. In the Balkans, you have several military commanders who have come before the International Criminal Court charged with crimes against humanity, rooted in sexual violence. The same is true for Colombia. There seems to be no part of the world which is exempt. But in parts of Africa, it really is astounding what is taking place in the post-election violence in Kenya. Suddenly, more and more women were turning up at the hospitals, raped and subject to the most grotesque sexual violence. In Zimbabwe, an organization I'm involved in, to which I will refer at the end, AIDS Free World, that, uh, that uh, Lisa mentioned in the introduction. I can't go into details which you will understand, but we have been over the last few weeks in an unnamed country in Africa interviewing and taking affidavits under formal legal terms from the women who have been raped by Mugabe's youth corps as Zimbabwe has ground down over the last several months and terror camps were created, that's what they're called, to subject women associated in any way with the political opposition to insensate sexual violence. And I was recently in Liberia meeting with the president of Liberia and the minister of gender and, and the UNICEF representative and they were telling me that that the majority of rapes now in Liberia after the civil war is over but the raping continues the majority of rapes are committed against young girls between the ages of 10 and 14 and, and everybody knows what's happening in Darfur that need not be explicated at length for five years now the entire world has agreed that there's a genocide taking place and for whatever unconscionable reason we've never been able to bring it to an end I mean, forgive me, but this is not the Taliban in, in Darfur. These are Janjaweed militia commanders on horseback. And it is entirely possible to have subdued that and brought it to an end if the world cared a tinker's dam for what was happening in that country. And, and in the case of, uh, of the Congo... You have, a, you have a war on women. You know, if I may make a, a, a somewhat intellectual, more intellectual observation, rape is no longer a weapon of war. Rape has become a strategy of war. You rape women in such numbers so savagely that you humiliate entire communities through the women. The women hold the communities together. On the continent of Africa, nothing happens without the engagement of the women, particularly at the grassroots, particularly on the ground. And what happens is that the entire community is subdued, oppressed, overcome by these roving bands of marauding Militias who rape the women, move the community off the extractive resources, which is what they want, or turn the women into sex slaves and the men into the laborers who do extract the resources. And it's hideous, the, 
consequences. And it's been going on since 1996. More than a quarter of a million women have been raped. And what is so unfathomable about it is that everyone in position of power knows. And it continues. I, 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 I'll never, never comprehend in, in, in August of last year, Eve Ensler, the magnificent dramatist and writer of the Vagina Monologues, went off to, to the Congo to see for herself what was happening, and she spent a month or more and came back and wrote an immensely powerful essay, the first words of which were, I have just returned from hell. And I, I do not have the emotional equanimity to read to you the case histories that Eve set out. But after she came back, suddenly the Undersecretary General of the United Nations, John Holmes, goes off to the Congo, comes back, writes an op-ed for the Los Angeles Times, and calls it the worst place in the world for women. The Undersecretary General of the United Nations, who appears before the Security Council on a regular basis. And then suddenly there's a front page piece in the New York Times, and a front page piece in the Washington Post, and a front page piece in the Los Angeles Times. And, and Anderson Cooper of CNN does a 20 minute segment on 60 minutes, and everybody is caught up in the anxiety and urgency of what is being done to the women. It's, it's impossible to say in a way that can be absorbed what's happening to the women. In the city of Bukavu, in the eastern region of the Congo, there's a little hospital called the Pansy Hospital where a a lovely group of surgeons attempt desperately to repair the reproductive tracts of the women. This is rape that isn't merely the gang raping of 80-year-olds and 8-year-olds, although that takes place. It's rape with mutilation and amputation and guns and knives, guns shot into the vaginas of women, I'm speaking to a sophisticated audience that cares about human issues. There is a medical term in the Pansy Hospital in Bukavu, which I never in my adult life expected to encounter. It's called vaginal destruction. And Eve Ensler has appeared before the Security Council. And we had an ostensible peace agreement, part of which peace agreement provided an amnesty for the militias that were doing the raping. And the war never ended. And the raping continues. And the war is now resuscitated. And so bad have things become that Condoleezza Rice, on June 13th, sorry, June 19th, at the Security Council, introduced a resolution branding sexual violence as a matter of international peace and security. That had never been happened before. And we have 17,000 United Nations peacekeepers in the Congo, the biggest peacekeeping mission in the world, and we cannot protect the women. <clears throat> and everyone knows it's happening. And everybody knows that if we increase the numbers of peacekeepers or the United Nations agencies did their job on the ground or we confronted the government of the Congo in a way that no one has had the courage to confront, we could perhaps abate the violence. But I have to tell you, it's so monstrous and it's so rooted in gender inequality that it makes one feel not just tormented but dismal about the prospects for human behavior. And the sixth millennium development goal was to turn back the communicable diseases of AIDS, uh, tuberculosis, and malaria. In my country of Canada, we have talked of HIV and AIDS frequently, and there is a very considerable sensibility. And I don't want to drive the nail through the wall except to show you or tell you that as an extension of the gender inequality is the tremendous disproportionate vulnerability of the women. So of the 23 million people living with the virus in sub-Saharan Africa, 61% are women and girls. And if you look at the age group 15 to 24, where fully half of the new infections occur, between 75 and 80% are young women and girls. It's like some kind of Darwinian assault on one sex. 
and, and the tremendous vulnerability means a, a kind of carnage, a death of a whole generation between the ages of 19 and 49, which robs a country of its strength. One, one must understand that, that these countries in Africa, there is so much sophistication and intelligence and generosity of spirit and human decency at the grassroots, particularly amongst the women, that it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see the struggle that is insufficiently responded to by the international community. It's not that we don't deal with the men. Of course we deal with the men. Of course everybody tries to, to, to spread the message of prevention. But people also understand that it's going to take a couple of generations to change male sexual behavior and the women are dying now. And somehow they have to be empowered in a way which can withstand the predatory sexual assaults. And one of the things that happened in Africa, which is almost inexplicable, is the absence of understanding what would be left behind. It's as though everybody were taken by surprise that there are now 15 million orphans, a monumental number of orphan kids, and countries can't handle it. There are more than a million orphans in several countries. It's, it's extraordinary. And these kids, you cannot imagine the depth of the trauma. I, I mean, if, if I can just say, I, I don't know how many huts I've entered in the last several years where the where the experience is always the same. Lying on the floor of the hut, emaciated, sepulchral, covered in rags, is a human figure, usually the mother, in the last stages of full-blown AIDS. And her little kids, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they're running around the village frantically trying to find an aspirin to treat an opportunistic infection just to relieve the pain. Or they're finding a cloth to wipe the brow of the mother. Or they're cleaning up the mother if she's incontinent. You don't know how humiliating that is for mother and child. And then these little kids, like kids everywhere, they stand in the hut and they watch their mothers die. And they're so incredibly bewildered. It's so inexplicable. It so defies understanding this sudden yanking away of the anchor of their lives. And although they're like all kids, they're filled with curiosity and awe and wonder and you can evoke from them resilience and joy, when you talk to them about what's happening, there's such a scar of pain that sears the soul. And the communities want to absorb them, but the communities are too impoverished. And the extended family would absorb them, but the extended family is itself decimated by the virus. So you know who the unsung heroes of Africa are? The grandmothers. The grandmothers of Africa bury their own adult children, and then at the age of 60 and 70 and 80 and 90, they begin to parent again. They look after their orphan grandchildren, sometimes 5, 10, 15 orphan grandchildren. It's absolutely astonishing. There was a study out from HelpAge International a couple of weeks ago saying that 50% of the orphan children were being looked after by their grandmothers. In several countries, it's 60 and 70%. The communities and societies are held together by these grandmothers. It's really quite something to witness. They provide them with food. I don't know where they find it. They manage to get them into school. They manage to find money for school fees. They take the kids to the clinic when the kids have a health problem. The studies show that a nurturing grandmother is the best fate for an orphan child who's been orphaned by AIDS. But it's so difficult. We've never had a situation like this in human history. Not even the Black Death of the 14th century approximated this. Never have millions of orphan grandchildren been looked after by their grandmothers. It has never happened before. In Canada, as it happens, large chapters of Canadian grandmothers, in fact, 10,000 Canadian grandmothers in 220 chapters coast to coast have set up a solidarity bridge with African grannies in order to sustain them. And it's a wonderful thing that has occurred on uh, in Canada. And it means a tremendous amount at both ends. 
but the African grandmothers are surely struggling. And the seventh millennium development goal is the goal that is probably closest to the hearts of many people in this room. It's the goal to achieve sustainable environmental development. And I, uh, I, I don't have to speak to that unduly, except to recount for you an experience I had uh, just more than a year ago when I attended the Clinton Global Initiative in New York, where you know over a period of two or three days, uh, some of the uh, most senior CEOs and associates uh, from the multinational corporations gather together, and Clinton divides them into streams, poverty, health, education, environment, and attempts to get them to make commitments to initiate major projects in line with one of those themes. And uh, the first session of the conference was a plenary panel which Clinton himself moderated. And the plenary panel was made up of the following. Listen to this delicious amalgam. The president of Afghanistan, the president of the Philippines, the new president of the World Bank, the chief executive officer of Walmart, Bishop Tutu, and Al Gore. Uh, a, a, a most extraordinary compendium. And of course, Bishop Tutu was the star. Uh, when, when he was being introduced, Clinton said, and now I'd like to introduce to you President Tutu. Oh, I, I'm sorry, I mean Bishop Tutu. And Bishop Tutu grabbed the microphone and said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I was speaking in Washington just yesterday, and when I finished speaking, a woman ran up to me and grabbed me in a visceral grip and said, how good to meet you, Bishop Mandela. Uh, <laughs> and Tutu felt that was two for one and was quite uh, comfortable with it. But what was so interesting about the panel was that every time Al Gore opened his mouth, the place erupted in the wildest foot-stomping, whistling, and cheering I have ever seen chief executive officers of multinational corporations engage in. In fact, it was very useful that there were no cameras around uh, because it was unsettling that they could be so human. And it... Uh, <laughs> And it was entrancing to the point of rhapsody to see the way in which they responded to the environment and environmental issues. And, and for those of you who are engaged in the socially responsible investing corporate social responsibility domain of environmental priorities, you are, of course, on the major subject of the age. Uh, ironically, and this is completely by accident, I, I, many years ago, in June of 1988, chaired the first international conference on climate change when the various targets were hitched to the reality of global warming. And, and it is, I think, um, fair to say now, and I don't want to make this more apocalyptic than, than uh, is reasonable in a lovely dinner on a pleasant evening, but I, I, I do want to say to you that I'm one of those people who believes that if there isn't the most astonishingly dramatic reduction in the discharge of carbon, we are headed for a cataclysm between 2030 and 2050. And these positions are more and more scientifically and authoritatively put by thoughtful and intelligent human beings whose lives are consumed by this issue, whether it's a fellow like Sir Nicholas Stern, a former vice president of the World Bank who did the study for the United Kingdom, or whether it's a fellow like Tim Flannery from, from, uh, uh, from uh, Australia who wrote the extraordinary book, The Weathermakers, they are all coming to the same conclusion consistent with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that got the Nobel Prize with Al Gore. If we do not reduce carbon discharge by between 70 and 90 percent by the year 2030, this world is going to have a catastrophe somewhere in the immediate aftermath. I won't be around, but the consequences for children and grandchildren are impossible to imagine. And the eighth and final Millennium Development Goal, which those of you of, of uh, remarkable durability will appreciate is the final goal, uh, is, to, is to fashion a shared partnership between the developing world on one hand and the developed on the other, so that the developed world does not betray its promises the moment those promises are made. 
And that, you see, lies at the heart of the problem. The G8 countries make these promises, as they did at Glen Eagles in 2005, and then they betray the promises almost the moment they're made. And I don't understand why major leaders internationally do that kind of thing. Why engage in these solemn commitments and then disparage them shamelessly as you walk out of the room? And one of the things that everybody is hoping is that the constellation of Gordon Brown and Barack Obama replacing the constellation of Tony Blair and George Bush will change the dynamic of the G8 fundamentally so that there will be a much greater regard and affection for the vulnerability of the human condition. And how does it all come together here? It comes together because just as with the global compact for corporations in the, in the United Nations, when you believe in human rights, when you believe in labor rights, when you believe in environmental rights, when you believe in decent governance, then you're beginning to fashion a society where social justice rises to the top, where you have a more civilized and decent international community. And that, it seems to me, is what all of you are forging, and that's why it's a privilege to be a part of it. I'm here really because of work with AIDS Free World out of the United States. And I, I, I urge you, if this isn't presumptuous on my part, to visit the website of, uh, of uh, AIDSFreeWorld.org because I, I, I think it will resonate with the kinds of instincts that are at work in this room and maybe can provide the kind of, uh, of intellectual and other support which sustains advocacy because that's what we're trying to do is engage in advocacy. And setting out the panorama that I've attempted tonight is, is, is a way of saying to you where in the world is the world headed? It's headed for a certain Armageddon amongst vulnerable populations unless even at a difficult moment in time we rally to our senses. You cannot abandon huge numbers simply because we ourselves are experiencing a relatively prolonged but undoubtedly resilient, if uh, notably difficult situation. People often ask me, was there a moment, Stephen, in the course of your work where you got completely engaged and the uh, and the answer is yes despite my apparent distance <laughs> it was in uh, 2003 I was um, I was in the country of Zambia I was at the university teaching hospital in the capital Lusaka I was moving through the pediatric ward with a wonderful administrator, a, a truly gentle and loving guy. There were five and six infants in every cot, and they were struggling and strangling in a combination of the virus on one hand and malnutrition on the other. And as we went through the ward, stopping to look at these little morsels fighting for life, there was suddenly a shriek of such agony that I remember swiveling around compulsively to find out what in heaven's name was happening. And in the far corner of the ward, beside one of the cots, was a young mother on her knees, crying inconsolably as the nurse came in with a white sheet and covered up the little child and took it away. And I could not imagine <clears throat> what then happened. Every ten minutes I was in the ward, there was another cry of anguish <clears throat> and another child died. And I remember saying to the administrator, how do you live with this? And he said to me, I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Lewis, but it has become 
commonplace. We just deal with it. And we walked out of the ward and into the courtyard and through the window of the ward came a kind of final, galvanizing, riveting, horror scream. I'm 70 years old. I've kicked around in politics and I've kicked around in diplomacy and I've kicked around in multilateralism. I'm not some sweet innocent. I thought I understood the way the world works. I don't understand the way the world works. I do not understand. I will not understand till my dying day why it is possible to embrace so much privilege in some parts of the world and so much struggle in other parts of the world where people are as decent and as generous of spirit and motive as any one of us. And it seems to me that if you're engaged in any activity that embraces the word ethical, then it's important beyond all else to create a more just, more decent, more humane, more civilized international community. I thank you for having me. Everybody take a deep breath. Thank you very much, Mr. Lewis. We really, really appreciate your being here. And, and I think, um, frankly, I can't think of a, a better way to start this conference. So I really appreciate that. And I want to acknowledge a special level of support which has allowed us to bring Mr. Lewis to SRI in the Rockies this evening and open our program. Special thanks to conference patron Voyager Asset Management and RBC Asset Management whose Jancy funds provided options, provide options for the growing number of investors who believe environmental, social, and governance factors should be the primary consideration in making investment decisions. And like all of us, they, all of us, are about redirecting the flow of capital in ways that are going to improve society. Obviously, the challenge is huge. Stephen Lewis has given us a, a perspective that maybe many of us didn't have before. I certainly didn't myself. And I just once again want to thank you so very much for sharing with us this evening. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.